0: Before we dive into this amazing passage and part of the Bible, I actually want to mark something for us uh, because this weekend marks the 10 year anniversary of us first moving into this building, the round. It was on this very weekend, 10 years ago, that we had our first services here. Now, if you're new to us, here's a little bit of the story. We started in school halls, quickly outgrew them. We built the hall that's up the road, up the hill there, but grew out of that, as you could see in that previous picture, so started knocking this building up. Uh, It was a one-year build uh, to get this thing that we call the round built, so that in 2014 we moved in on this weekend, having our very first services. And there's a plaque that you'll actually find on one of the columns just out of the foyer here that we mounted that has this prayer that I wanted to point us to. It was and remains, but in 2014, a prayer that in the years to come, this building would serve to bring thousands upon thousands of people to know the love, forgiveness and solid hope that is found only in Jesus. Ten years ago... Um, Would you do something for me? Would you put your hand up and keep your hand up if you have joined EV, this church, in the last 10 years at some point? Would you have a look and and see those hands? Um, We've had 260 adults come to profess faith in Christ over that 10 years. A whole bunch more youth. There are 620 more adults today who call this church home than there were when we stuck that plaque on the column. And about 1,000 more kids as well, right? Half of them born last week. <laughs> actually, of, of that 620 people, many are those who have become Christians. Many of you, actually, or some of you were in youth group in this building 10 years ago, but are now sitting here as parents, with kids up in the ministry there, this is a moment to mark that we might give great thanks to God that he's been answering this prayer, that he really is filling this building one person at a time. And the reason numbers matter is because every number is a person, precious to God who desperately needs to know their Lord and Saviour, Jesus. So we can be thankful that he's answered this prayer. We can be thankful for the sacrifice and generosity of many Christians, many of you, but many before, uh, before us who actually gave to make this happen, financially, sacrificially gave, so that you, we might a- actually have the seat that we sit in to hear the sound of God's voice. We can be thankful for that. And it is a moment for us to refocus on our mission, to re-pray this prayer for another decade. Because there are 300,000 people on the Central Coast, there is still much more to do. So many more people to reach with the good news of Jesus. And so it is a call and encouragement for each one of us to partner in that. We are a bigger family today than we were 10 years ago Imagine if we would together recommit to that vision to take this news of Jesus and see what he might do in the next 10 years. Wouldn't that be a great thing for us to be a part of? I'm going to pray now in light of that prayer and this moment. Well, Father God, we do thank you so much that you have been pleased to hear and answer this prayer. We thank you for the provision of the Lord Jesus that we have everything in him. We thank you for the provision of this building, this site, these facilities, that you have been pleased to use to draw so many people along to hear the good news of your son, so many people who have come to bow their knee, who have new life, eternal life in him. We thank you for the generation that has grown up, that we truly are now a multi-generational ministry, And we ask, please, that you might be merciful and do this even more in the 10 years to come. Please, Lord, continue to fill this building one person at a time who comes to know and love and trust the Lord Jesus. Would you stir us, would you give us your heart for this mission and be pleased to protect us as we give ourselves to that and we ask that you might do that growth, you might do that protection even now as we come to this word of your Son Jesus. And we pray this in His name, Amen. Well, have you ever had a near death experience where you've had the presence of mind to shoot off a prayer? Have you ever prayed a near death prayer? I've had one vivid memory. I was younger, I was driving, it was a split moment kind of thing where I thought, this is it, I'm going to die in a car accident and all I could pray was, help! (laughs) And the Lord answered, clearly, here I am. In fact, there wasn't even a car accident. Some years later, uh, many years later actually, I was going into hospital for surgery. It was pretty routine stuff, nothing life-threatening about the surgery though it did require a general anaesthetic and if you've had one of those you know the anaesthetist talks to you and says you know very unlikely that anything could go wrong but please sign here in case it does (laughs) you could die and I remember going into the theatre and the drugs kicking in and starting to feel a little bit foggy and I had the presence of mind I thought what if this is it what if I don't wake up on on the side of this needle or what if I Do wake up before Jesus. (laughs) And so I prayed and I remember praying and I remember it was very clear and very simple. I said, Lord Jesus, if this is it and I'm about to meet you, protect my wife and my kids. Hold on to them for as many days as you would give them that we might be reunited together. Protect my family, protect their faith Now, of course, I woke up, I was fine, I was a little groggy, Uh, here I am, but it was a moment of clarity for me, which actually did reveal what mattered to me most, because here's the thing about our prayers, they reveal our priorities. Our prayers, your prayers, they reveal our priorities, which is what makes this prayer in front of us so special, the prayer of the Lord Jesus, because it is a window into what matters most for him. And this actually was literally a near-death prayer for him. He prayed it on the eve of his death, his certain death that he knows he will die the next day. He spent the last day and the last evening with his disciples. He's had a meal, he's been teaching them. We've been working through that in John. And we hit chapter 17, which is actually something of a high point for Jesus as he prays this near-death prayer. It's an amazing prayer. I wish I could even come close to doing it justice. It's a prayer that takes us into eternal realities as God the Psalm prays to God the Father by the Spirit we're actually taken into the Godhead himself. And it's a prayer that captures up your eternal life in it if you're a follower of Jesus. It's a prayer that's about more than you, but it captures you up in this near-death final prayer of Jesus. I hope that becomes clear as we work through it according to these three points. Who does Jesus pray to? Who does Jesus pray for? And what does Jesus pray for? Let's move through it in that order. Number one, who does Jesus pray to? Have a look there, verse one. Jesus looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Jesus prays to the Father. Now as you trace through the prayer, you actually see that he repeats this address all the way through the prayer. A number of times he's praying to Father. Verse 1, verse 5, verse 11, 21, 24. Holy Father, Righteous Father, Jesus prays to God as Father. Now we get so familiar with this, we can forget just how radical and striking this really was. In the first century, for Jews, it wasn't uncommon, inappropriate, or weird for the Jewish people to speak of God as the Father of the nation. God was the Father of the Jewish nation of Israel. But no one dared to personally address God as Father. No, no why God, God was so holy, so far, so transcendent. And yet here is Jesus praying to Almighty God as Father. This was radically new with the coming of Jesus and uniquely applicable to him. Please listen into to this. This is the best part of the sermon because it's got nothing to do with you or me. Because if you've been reading this Gospel with us over the years, chapter 1, the prologue, begins by telling us just who this Jesus is. It says, We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. Jesus comes along and as we read through the pages in chapter 2, he walks up to the temple in Jerusalem, the temple of God, right? And he calls it my father's house. And he keeps speaking and acting in this kind of way so that chapter 5, we read that he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus was under no illusions as to who he is, the unique, eternal Son of God, who therefore could address the eternal Father as his Father, personal Father. This carpenter, this man from a humble home on the outskirts of Israel is God in the flesh. Before we get to anything else, this is the most breathtaking part of the prayer, to actually see who prays it, which is revealed by who he prays to, God the Father. Jesus prays and addresses God as Father, but he actually comes to bring that privilege to us. Have a look at verse 2 there. He says, For you granted him, that's himself, authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you see a couple of things here? What has Jesus come to bring? Well, he's come to bring eternal life. What is eternal life? What lies at the heart of eternal life? It's not just resurrection from the dead to everlasting life. It's not just, entering into heaven where there is no sin and suffering, though it will include that. It is at its heart, what does Jesus say? Knowing God, which is why we've titled this series as such. Knowing God, knowing personally the only true God as Father. As Jesus does. This idea, this word knowing is a very intimate word in the Bible. When you trace back to Genesis and you read that Adam knew his wife Eve and she became pregnant, it tells you something about the Hebrew word knowing. It is personal, it is intimate. This is eternal life, not just being raised from the dead, not just going to heaven, not just avoiding suffering, not just knowing stuff about God, but intimately, personally, knowing God as Father is what Jesus has come to bring. Verse 3, he prays to his Father, notice there, as the only true God. You've got to see those words. These are some of the most offensive words to the ears of our age. He prays to his Father as the only true God. And notice he says there that eternal life is to know this only true God and Jesus Christ, who God has sent. Which is why through the Gospels, Jesus keeps saying, what you do with the only true God depends on what you do with me. Friends, keep hearing this, maybe for the first time. You want to know God? what you do with God is determined by what you do with Jesus. And here's the wonderful thing, and I'll come back to this. You can walk out of this building today knowing God, having eternal life. Yes, there is a future dimension to it, but you can have it today, now, because of what Jesus has brought. A few chapters earlier, he has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so what we are doing here is not just our religious preference of choice. Uh, We haven't just signed up to some Western empirical dominating religion. We have come to the man Jesus Christ who is himself God, the one who has come to bring relationship with him. So much falls out of just asking that question, Who? does Jesus pray to actually opens up a window into just who Jesus is he is like no other which brings us to the second point who does Jesus pray for so that's who he prays to revealing who Jesus is but who does he pray for well firstly himself it's there in verse 1 father the hour has come glorify your son that your son may glorify you Then again, verse 5, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus prays for himself specifically that God would glorify him. Now, glory, glorify is familiar Bible language that can actually start to get hard to describe when we're pushed on it. What, What does it actually mean? Jesus here, in asking God to glorify him, is asking him to clothe him with splendour. Clothe me with splendour. Now, that's, we don't really speak like that in, in common language. If I could put it in simple speak, he's saying to God, God, make a big deal of me. Make a big deal of me. Glorify me. Now again, this shows the uniqueness of Jesus because this is not the prayer that you and I should pray. God, make a big deal of me. Clothe me in splendor. Again, shows to the uniqueness of who this man is. So that verse 5, he asks for the glory that was his from all eternity before the world began. This man is no mere man. He speaks of the glory, splendour of being seated at the right hand of God, the one who created, all things were created through him and for him. But notice the way to this glory of verse 5. It's there in verse 1. The hour has come, glorify your son. Now, this is where you've got to be a careful Bible reader to understand what the way of this glory is. Because if you've been reading through this account, we keep hearing Jesus from the start saying, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Then in chapter 12, it all turns, it all changes. And he says, My hour has come. And he immediately goes on to speak of how he will be lifted up in his death. For the hour to come for Jesus is to speak to the hour of his death. Therefore, the hour of his glory is actually the hour of his horrific death. Just think about how countercultural that understanding of glory, of splendour, of such a big deal is. Taylor Swift has taken over this country this weekend, hasn't she? This week. Uh, Everywhere you turn, at least in my circles, anything you tune into, there's Tay-Tay being spoken about. Um, We are witnessing, I want to put it to you, one of the biggest pop phenomenons possibly ever, at least since the Beatles, if not bigger than the Beatles. There is something going on. Maybe you've been to a show this weekend. I've listened to some Swifties who have been... I've been to a show and describe the experience, and it's just, you know, yeah, they, they can hardly speak. Um, it was just the most amazing experience of my life. You know, every piece of it, from the costumes to the dancing to the singing to the show to the whole, as, as hundreds of thousands of adoring fans glorified Tay Tay, made a big deal of Tay Tay, along with seemingly all the media, right? There's glory in our world, in our country right now. But when the Bible reaches for the most glorious event in history, it presents Jesus suffering on a cross, excruciating shame, pain. The agony, not of nails driven through his hands or thorns crushed into his head, but the agony of the wrath of God which has been poured out on him full strength as he willingly, in love for his father, drinks the cup down to its very dregs. The most glorious event that the Bible says you could put your eyes on is the most horrific, sobering scene you could imagine. The glory of the cross. This shows how countercultural true glory really is. As God Himself says, You want to know glory? Look at the cross of my Son. Jesus begins His prayer, asking the Father to glorify Him in His death, a glory that is unmatched, unrivaled, the biggest deal ever. There's the first part of his prayer for himself. Secondly, he moves to praying for his disciples. From verse 6, you'll see it. Now, it is the case, and we'll come to this next week, that from verse 20, he widens out the prayer even more to future disciples. And so what you have here in verse 6 is a prayer for the disciples that absolutely includes the 11 that are with him in that moment, but also includes the future disciples Chase it up later, you'll see it in verse 2 because he says that God has granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Verse 6, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours, you have given them to me. Jesus sets up a contrast here between those that he prays for and those that he doesn't. And it's so significant, we need to see it. Verse 6. He says, These disciples, they were yours. Oh, sorry, at the start, I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Verse 9. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Again, in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Do you see the stark contrast that Jesus sees between his people that he prays for and the world that he says he doesn't pray for? This significant is is so important for us. get and to hold onto and again it is so offensive to our age. The Super Bowl was a couple of weeks ago, Um, maybe you are interested in that, you followed that, I personally couldn't care less about the game, I really don't care that Taylor Swift was at the game but clearly lots of people did because it was the most watched Super Bowl in history. 123 million Americans tuned in to watch this game of American football with Tay-Tay at the middle of it, seemingly. It was the biggest TV audience since Man Landed on the Moon. Something big's going on there. And so, any advertising that is played is obviously very, very expensive and gets a lot of eyeballs. And there was an ad that was played during the broadcast... Uh, By a group, by a campaign, wanting to put it on about Jesus, the ad was called He Gets Us. And it features a diverse collection of people from all different walks of life, uh, different religions. People are pictured as they wash each other's feet. And it's intentionally trying to say how diverse this group of people is. And it finishes with the words... Jesus didn't teach hate, he washed feet. He gets us. He's the ad. Now in one sense, the ad is ambiguous about its message. Um, is it wanting to communicate that Jesus came to make the Father known to any and all, no matter your background, no matter who you are and what you've done? If so, awesome. Is... It's intent to remind Christians, followers of Jesus, to love and be compassionate, be kind to any and all, regardless of our differences. Good. But if it's intended to say that Jesus is affirming and accepting of everyone, no matter who they are, what they've done, as they remain, and if we could just put aside our religious differences then the world would live as one, or at least get closer to it. If that's what it's intending to say, then the ad is not talking about the Jesus of the Bible. If it's wanting to say, look, the world is fine, if only the world could just love each other a bit better, that's what Jesus would want. Jesus I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for my people. Yes, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Chapter 3, verse 16. Verse 17, Jesus came to save the world. And yet the world, left as it is, in and of itself, is hopeless. The world has no hope in and of itself. In and of itself It hates God, it is filled with people who refuse to recognise God for who he is, who refuse to recognise his son as the revelation of God. And when you actually turn back to chapter 13 where Jesus does wash his disciples' feet, he says that unless he washes them clean, they have no part of him. You find that the washing of the feet is more than just an example to love and be kind It's a symbol that Jesus uses to say, if you are not washed clean by me in my death, you have no part of me. If you have not come to me truly to receive me, you have no part of me. Jesus doesn't just get us, he saves us. Jesus is so much more than just a model and an inspiration. He is God himself substituting himself in the place of sinners that those who would look to him might be forgiven, might be restored, might be transformed, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. This is a radical message that Jesus brings. He hasn't come just to be the world's life coach. And so before we go any further to look at what Jesus asks for, for his people, let me ask you this. Are you among the people that Jesus prays for? Which is to say, have you come out of the world by looking to the Saviour of the world? By humbling yourself to see your need for His work on the cross for you? To see His right to be Lord over every dimension of your life? Have you come out of the world? Here's the good news you could do that this morning, and you could come to know eternal life this morning. Come to know God as Father who forgives as you would look to his Son on the cross. And if you have done that, this is a reminder for us to no longer identify with the world. That's not us. To come to Jesus is to break with the world. Because the world in and of itself is lost. And so maybe this morning this is a word to you who is living a double life. You've got one foot in the Jesus camp, but you've got another foot fairly planted in the world, consciously. You love so much of the world that you just can't, you won't take your foot out of it to stand with Jesus. If that is you, this is a word to you to stop, to repent, to break with the world which are those who have hope, which are those that Jesus prays for. Now we'll come back to the hope of the world in a moment. But for those of us who have come to Jesus, uh, how hard is it constantly to to fight the temptation of the world, to identify with it, to belong with it, to return to the sinful pleasures that we experienced in the world? How, How will God answer this prayer of Jesus? How will he enable us to be not of the world but in the world? Well, we see that as we move to the third point and look at what Jesus prays for. What's he requesting? Now, something of it we're going to come back to next week in part two around unity. The first thing though, we see in verse 11, he prays for God's protection for you if you are his person. Verse 11 he says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they, his disciples, are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. Jesus, with his near death prayer, reveals what matters most to him and he prays for God's protection, his father's protection over his people. Not meaning that God would protect his followers from anything that is hard and horrible in life. He can't mean that because immediately before this prayer in chapter 16, he said to his disciples, In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. He doesn't mean that things will be easy and comfortable, that there won't be pain, that we'll be protected from that. What does he mean? He prays for the protection of his followers' souls. Of our faith that looks away from ourselves and to Him as a Saviour, Him as our Lord. That's clear from verse 12, where Jesus says that none of His disciples have been lost except for Judas, who, by his own choice, decided to betray Jesus and from the perspective of God and eternity shows himself to be someone who hasn't been given by the Father to the Son, as he then willingly, responsibly chooses for himself to betray Jesus. You see, Jesus clearly has in mind the protection of our faith that would look to a saviour, to keep us to the end. He repeats it in verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. Do you see the world and the evil one, the devil, go hand in glove? Do you realise that if it was up to you, if it was up to me, to persevere in our walk with Jesus, we would be lost in a heartbeat? If it depended entirely on us, we would be lost. We would not make it to the end. There are wars that rage in our world, horrible wars in Palestine, Ukraine. But do you realise that when you woke up this morning, a fresh war was launched for your soul? That the enemy would love to drag you away from the only name that saves. Our battle is not against flesh and blood Our battle is against spiritual realities that oppose Christ and seek to destroy his people. Jesus sees this clearly and so prays to his Father, protect them, hold on to them. Do you see what a comfort this prayer of our Lord is? That he intercedes to almighty God, sovereign over all things, don't lose one of them. Protect them. Whatever situation and circumstance they're in that would tempt them to deny me, walk away, protect them. And so we have good reason, not for complacency, but for confidence that the Lord Jesus, he, he prayed, Father, protect Jez, keep him to the end. If you're a follower of him, put your name in. protect We have reason for confidence that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Left to ourselves, hopeless. But it's God who holds us, who protects us. Now, does that mean we let go and let God? Absolutely not. See, how does Jesus expect God to answer his prayer to protect his people? What does Jesus imagine that that's going to look like, God holding on to us? Well, it's there in the next thing that he asks for in verse 17. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Please look at that again. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means set apart. Where the holy word, the holiness idea, the holy father, the set apart father idea. Jesus is talking about being set apart from the world that is lost, set apart to knowing God, to enjoying eternal life, set apart to see Jesus for who he is. How does that happen? Look at it. By the truth, your word is truth. This word that we come to, that we gather around, uh, that we, we we build our lives on, we, we sit underneath, is anything but just an ancient historical document. It is the very powerful means of God to bring people to eternal life and to hold on to them, to sanctify them, to, to set them apart to hold on to them, to, to grow them to be more and more the people that God has saved them to be. It's here in the truth. And so let me give you this very basic but profound application by asking you, are you reading the Word of God regularly, sincerely, expectant? Trusting that this is actually how I come to my Father. This is how I know him. And so I come regularly, even if it's hard. I come regularly and expectantly. Are you doing that? Jesus has prayed that the Father might protect us. How? By his word. And so this morning might be a kick in the pants for you if you have fallen out of the discipline of coming to the word of God. Kicking the pants for you who, who know you've been neglecting it, uh, the gap has been getting longer. Friends, you are in danger to cut yourself off from the very means that Jesus expects God to hold on to his people by. Don't let go and let God. God's got you. By yourself, we're lost. He says, sanctify them by your word. And so if you are someone who fits that category, who has fallen out of it, can I encourage you to commit today to wake up tomorrow and open the Word. Now, probably it'll mean needing to start small. And so for you, if you've not been reading it at all, start with one paragraph and spend one minute responding in prayer. Yes, it would be great to get back into an hour and two hours, but if you've been doing nothing, I am trying to recover from an injury, and I've been at the gym, and according to my physio, just lifting little weights, little increments, and this week my pride got the better of me as I watched young 15-year-old girls lifting way heavier weights than me. And so what did I do? I upped it, and I set myself right back to the beginning. Um, If you've fallen out of this habit... You're going to have to start bit by bit by bit. Commit to doing that tomorrow. If you open your eyes tomorrow, commit to opening the Word of God. Commit to doing that on Tuesday. And tell someone today that that's your commitment. Get some accountability in your life. May we not be a church that talks about loving the Word, but on Monday, cutting ourselves off from it. Now notice what flows, what follows from being set apart. Verse 18, he says, As you, Father, sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. We are sanctified to be protected, yes, but also to be sent. Now this applies very particularly to the first 11, the apostles who were eyewitnesses of Jesus who went out and testified in the Scriptures by the inspiration of the Spirit so that we might actually have the word of truth. There is something particular about the apostles, but it is also the mission that has continued through every generation of disciples. That to be set apart is to actually be set apart on mission. See, I said earlier that the world is hopeless in and of itself. The only hope for the world... Well, it's it's the message, it's the saviour that we possess and would testify to, speak of, invite people to churn, to church, to life, to hear about. Friends, why has Jesus not returned 2,000 years since this prayer? Why do we live on the central coast? The great danger for us is we think it's so that we can live the lifestyle of the seven-day weekend. That's the way of the world that keeps dragging us and pulling us. The reason that we are still here is to testify to Jesus because he's not done saving the full number of those the Father has given him. And so this is a moment for us to refocus 10 years on. We praise God for all he's done but we are far from finished, far from there. There's 300,000 people on the Central Coast, most of them lost. How could we be settled and just want to keep it as it is? And so are you a part of partnering in the mission of Jesus by doing that in serving the mission that we're on about here as a church? Every every bit of partnership that we are seeking here is to be aimed at that mission, to make Jesus known, to see more and more people come. Imagine what God might do in 10 years if together we we continued to recognise that we've been sanctified, not to go and live the dream life, that's worldliness, but to do all we can to make Jesus known. And finally, this is an offshoot of what he prays, but it's there in verse 13. He says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they, that's the disciples, his followers, may have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus could have prayed quietly and his Father would have heard him all the same. But think about that. He prays out loud so that his disciples, the immediate ones in the first place, and all of us since, might hear his prayer. Why? So that we might have joy. The joy of knowing just who this Jesus is, the Son of God. The joy of the glory of the cross for us for his father the joy of knowing God now not just in heaven now and the joy of knowing that Jesus prayed for us and not just once 2,000 years ago but continues that interceding ministry for us as he sits at the right hand of the father father protect them hold on to them set them apart Honour my name as they go out with it, that you, Father, might get all the glory. That's the end goal, the glory of God. There's a byproduct, which is our joy, true joy, as we don't chase it but pursue making much of Jesus, who is making much of God. I want to pause there and give us a chance, as the band comes up, to respond to what the Lord has said to you this morning. Is that coming to him for the first time? Coming to know God? Is it to repent, step out of the world? Whatever it is, please take this moment in the quietness of your heart to respond to what we've heard.